Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the If You Market podcast brought to you by Mountaintop Data. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm your host, Sky Cassidy, joined uh, by our co-host, Carla Jo Helms. Hi, guys. And uh, today we'll be talking with best-selling author Chris Dyer about company culture. Chris is the founder and CEO of People G2, a background check company that has appeared on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies three times. He's the author of the award-winning book, The Power of Company Culture, and the host of Talent Talk, a podcast about hiring and promoting talent. As a sought-after speaker, consultant, and certified scrum master, Chris works with leading organizations to help them transform their cultures and boost performance. Chris, great to have you on the show today. Really looking forward to uh, talking about company culture. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. That line probably isn't speaking very often. Really looking forward to talking about company culture, but it's something we haven't covered. I am. Um, yeah, we haven't covered it on the show here, so, so it's always nice to cover something, uh, something new. Before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your path, how you got to... Uh, um, to, to the business you're in and to the, to the focus on company culture. Writing a book on company culture is not something I think people say when, I'm, when I grow up, that's what I want to do. How right. did you get there? Well, for me, life is always kind of one step at a time, like one little ladder thing, right? One thing happens and you sort of build on top of that. And I, by sort of being open to new things, I end up in places I did never expect. So um, I went from working at a hotel in West Hollywood to working at a background check company for probably the worst boss I've ever had in my entire life, but the commute was a lot better, right? So I thought I'd just do this for a while, and then 9-11 happened, and I watched those buildings go down and all those people die, and I went, oh, shit, why am I settling for like, you know, somewhat bit of comfort instead of doing what I really want to do, which is own my own business? So I went out and I started my own company. By, so that was September 11th. November 1st, I started my business, the one I still have today. We had a slightly different name back then, but um, it was Liberty Alliance, which is very patriotic, right? Because I don't know if you remember back then, everyone had like flags on there. Yeah. Uh, everyone had a flag out. Everyone was so patriotic at the time. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I did the background check thing for a while and it was a fun business and it was, you know, kind of family and friends and, you know, it was sort of a lifestyle thing. We weren't trying to like, you know, be special. We were just trying to make some money and pay. The you weren't bill. conquering the world. No, we weren't conquering the world. And then, and then the recession happened. Our technology really changed, and then the recession happened. And we went, well, we should probably rethink things, right? How we, what we started with, what our original goals were, how we manage the business, how I really, you know, work inside the business was it was changing, and I needed to radically change. And so I decided to go back. I don't know if you remember that movie with Russell Crowe where he has like schizophrenia and he's like drawing things all over and like putting string. Like I literally did a that in my office. Beautiful mind. Yeah. Did you have yeah, the string uh, the, with the pins up? Yeah. And, yeah. I literally did that. Do you have pictures? Um, I wish I would have <laughs> taken <it>. pictures. <laughs> that would have been a great media story, right? It really would have been. And if I had known what was going to happen, documenting that would have been really special. You don't um, want that to show up in your background check because then you, nobody's right. going to hire you when they see that. Good thing it wasn't, I didn't have any like a, a bad list or a hit list or anyone I was going to murder. It was all good stuff. It was all like. <laughs> beautiful mind montage, yeah. right? And what happened? And then on the side over here, just people to kill really small. Right, people to kill. <laughs> um, but I had these big glass windows in my office. And so I was just writing with a dry erase marker all, all the things that I wanted to do differently, all the things that were working, all the things that weren't working every idea I had about what we could change because I had a lot of time on my hands. 
right? Clients were not ordering. We were down like 45% in sales. I mean, it was, it was hard. My wife made me stop doing that at home. I used to use dry erase markers on every sheet of glass everywhere. And she's right, like, right. But it's great. Also it a post-it insane. Now yeah. So now, so now I, I just have, put post-its everywhere. So because of Scrum, I kind of have turned into more of the post-it note person because it's nice because you can write it down and when you're done, you can you know move it to another section or throw it away and then that space is opened up again. So it is a little bit more efficient. Um, well, that's the crazy stigma too. Like you seem less crazy. Right, you seem less crazy, right. <laughs> um, so I do that and I come up with a couple pretty big ideas. Number one is I want to save my people. Um, if I don't keep my people, when we come out of this recession, because I was confident we were, I wasn't going to have the people I needed to help me be successful. So how am I going to do that? Well, one of the ways I decided we were going to go remote. We were going to take everybody home, get rid of, we, our office rent was coming up. Woohoo! I'm, so, I'm all for remote workforces. Right. All for them. So now we're 100% remote, which um, a few people thought was a good idea. A few people thought was the stupidest idea I've ever had. And everyone else just basically said, we'll do it because you, you sign our paycheck. And <laughs> that's a nice breakout. There's nothing like paychecks to get people to do what you want. Right. They're like, well, if you say so. So we sent everybody home. And within two weeks, every single employee on their own called me and said, this is the best thing we've ever done. The next time you have some crazy idea, I'm in. Um, this is awesome. We love it. We're getting so much more work done. And that began for us the next phase, which was fixing our culture and changing our culture because uh, you can't manage a team the same way in a brick and mortar situation all together in one big bullpen as you can when everyone's working from home. So we naturally already had to change things. And so I really had to start working at that, talking to people, reading books, doing everything I could to figure out what does that mean? And that meant studying what were the best of the best doing. And that's really where the book came from. And, but, but we weren't quite there yet. So we were moving to that. We were starting to change things. I also realized that I was, the, I was getting in everyone's way. Like I, originally, everyone had to come to me because I was the one who knew how to do background checks. So they would, I was sort of this, all lines you know, ended up in my brain. Yeah, probably the whole organization kept collapsing on you, right? Right. And it, it was okay in the beginning when there was three employees, right? Yeah. At lunchtime, we just talk about stuff, whatever. That just kept going to the point where there's 20 employees and they're all having to constantly come to me. And so when I'm on vacation, you know, nothing ever gets done. Right. You got the nickname bottleneck and it was just right. not right. good. And so we had to undo that and figure out how to undo that. And I was so happy to undo that. I didn't want that anymore, but that was just how things had built and had kind of become that way. And even if I empowered people, um, they still had the old habit of coming to me in the end, right? They didn't want that. So I had to figure out how I was going to fix all that. And so we began doing all that stuff and it started working. We started getting attention and we started like, you know, growing rapidly and, and getting awards for our culture. And it was like, what's happening, right? So we decided to start talking about it. And I started speaking about it. I started hosting that uh, podcast that I still do. And we, it began this great conversation that was really good fodder for our clients too, because they were really excited. It's, it's a lot more fun to talk about culture than it is about background checks or how you could get sued or, you know, legal crap. I mean, it's really boring to talk about background checks. So when you're talking to companies about culture, are they typically talking to you because they have culture problems? I mean, yeah. what's, what's the, is that generally why they come to you? They have, they have major culture problems. I would say most of the time when I go in as a consultant and I work with a company, they are an A, a B plus to an A minus and they're trying to be an A plus. 
and, so and, not like they have a totally and I love it. And those people can still come to me and I'll help them out. But in the back of my mind, it drives me crazy that those C minus students and the, you know, the ones that are terrible at culture aren't calling me because well, I can help because them. Maybe because they're, they got their head in the sand and they're not really looking at it. Do you know, right. what is the biggest pain point when they, when that makes a person a, a B, B minus or an A minus, what's the biggest pain point they come to you regarding well, culture? Yeah. If they're in the B's and they know they want to be better, it's because they have high turnover. Um, they, people aren't making good decisions. There's no innovation. There's, you know, sort of this, they've gotten stuck. So they, they had the same problem I had, which was they realized that what their culture was at the start is no longer what their culture can be going forward. Yeah. So they come to me and oh, they say, interesting. and maybe they've the shift. There's a shift. They read the story and they realize, Oh, you went through this. We're in this now. Right. So come and help us. That's one. Um, secondly, we noticed there's some really interesting research out there about tribes, about people. And if you have 125 people in your organization, you, you can't remember, after that point, you can no longer remember everybody's name, right? You can no longer remember who does what and where do I go for this thing. When you get to be too many people. I stopped at 10, so that's 125 is pretty impressive. Right. But at 125, the organization stops being able to operate as a single unit. And it, you know, it's, it, it's, it'd be 115 to 130, but that number, that's, it's, that's when, uh, so from an anthropological perspective, uh, as humans, we used to, when the tribe got to be around that size, it would break off into pieces again and get to 125 and break off. Because about 125 is, you can't care about more than 125 people. You can't like keep track of and like work within a system. It just gets too big and too complicated. And so the people, then they break off. And, that, and that's just a form very, these little clicks kind of, is that what happens? And then the yeah, totally. I guess because if everything's tribal and you form the, you know, everybody's going to form a little tribe. Right. You know? and, right. And so wow. that, that's kind of the magic number. And so I also find that a lot What's of our magic number 125. Okay. So a lot of organizations come to me around that time because they know it's time to plan the next thing. Right. Got it. And at 125, we're going to have to do things differently. And they're usually in it. I mean, they're just, they're, they're high growth, fast moving. They're about to hire 50 more. And if you don't work on that culture, then if you don't fix it. Then they're going to go from 125 to 175 back down to 50 because they're going to, it's all going to get blown up. They're going to do layoffs. They're going to screw it up and then have to rebuild again. And if they even survive. So there are even like uh, manufacturing companies that know they build their plants to be up to 125 and they know that's the cap. And then they have another plant, have another facility and they build that up to 125. Fascinating. Because they well, know. That's sort of like an empirical thing. You, you, once right. you get to that point, you realize that's the tipping hmm. point. So logistically, it might make sense to have a larger plant, but the human part of it kind of maxes out around that size. Max 125. You can only... Hmm. You just can't, things get too, uh, you, they get inefficient. You know, you start like, you, you have people doing like three people doing the same job and one person can be doing the job. I mean, it, it all just gets messy. I, also, I guess I feel like I grew up in a small town and you couldn't really hide. It's more right. than 125 people, not too many. And, right. But then you move to a city and you're so much more anonymous. There's different behaviors people feel like they can do in a city because- right. They don't know any of these people. The whole city turns into an airport bathroom. It's That's like, a really well, good cares? analogy, Sky. Um, yeah. start, people start you know, misbehaving because 
you don't know the people. You're in Vegas, you know? Right. Every day in the office is in Vegas when you have 200 people, I guess. I don't know if you've read any of Malcolm Gladwell's books, but he talks about the broken window yes. syndrome, right? He talk, and so that's what I haven't read important. that one. Well, wait, was that in Tipping Point? That was in the tipping point, right? That was an analogy in there. But anyway, go ahead. I think, I think it was tipping point. I don't quote yeah, me, but I think it readers. Was. But it's basically one? that, you know, in a large setting like that, if you don't remove the graffiti, if you don't fix the broken windows, there's a subtext that tells people that no one cares, right? Yep. If you walk by a building and you see broken windows all the time, well, then no one cares. So I might as well go and graffiti the side of this wall. I might as well throw my trash on the ground. And it contributes to this. So they found out, they went into these communities and they, clean up their graffiti over and over and over and over again. They fix the broken windows over and over, no matter how long it took. And radically things changed in the inside that those communities. Crime went down, right? Things got better and nothing changed. The people didn't change. The policing didn't change. All they did was create an environment that was better. And I think that's a really good lesson for culture. If the environment is better, you're going to get better results, performance, profit, productivity, whatever that's important to you. And I think those three P's are what CEOs care about. Hmm. Um, it's kind of a pick up the trash in your neighborhood type thing. You see neighborhoods right. that are full of trash. If, your neighbor, if you go around picking up the trash in your neighborhood and keeping it clean, you're probably going to end up having a better neighborhood just right. because people feel like they're not yeah. in a dump. So they're going to stop dumping kind of. Like I see a that in our office. Neighborhood, you know, and people yeah. are just alert. I'll see know. in our office, uh, I'll see something sitting around that shouldn't be there or something wrong. And I'll ask, hey, how come nobody did anything about this? And I remember I had an employee one time that told me, well, that's not my job to take care of that. I said, right. oh, no, everybody in the company, if you walk by a problem, if you see a problem, that's your job to do at least tell somebody. You don't just yeah. say like, sorry, right. I'm in sales, so I don't pick up trash. I don't care that this is here, that's whatever, whatever the problem is. Um, if, if that's everybody's job. You're part of the company. There's no job description that's like, nah, if I see a problem, I just keep walking unless it, uh, it's something so I'm supposed to do. Anyone who's having that issue where employees are saying, that's not my job, that's not my problem. You have a culture problem. Yeah. Uh -oh. And there's things you have to work on. And it's more than just forcing them to have to do it, right? Or punishing them or whatever if they don't, you know, they notice the break room is full of trash and they don't do anything about it, right? But it's the idea that they need to bring it up, have it be a part of the conversation and be a part of the, the solution. And, and culture is really a big part of that. Um, we, we see time and time again that that stuff kind of permeates throughout the organization into other areas like wasting money on things we don't need to be wasting money right. on, you know, on, on doing stu just stupid projects and stupid things that everyone knows is stupid and waste all this money. But no, it's not my problem. I don't know. The boss said he wanted to do this thing. I mean, I guess it's an indicator that shows that the person doesn't care, really. Um, I think, I've, I I've heard people doing that in the interviews before. Right, but I think people care. Hmm. I, I'm the research, said, I mean, let's use, go back to that broken windows scenario, right? Nothing changed. Those, the people were the exact same people from when they started that project to when they ended it. How come things got so much better? Did people, I mean, it was the same people. It wasn't like you could say, well, they brought in new people to the neighborhood and that's why it got better. No, <laughs> the situation and the environment you put people in will drastically impact how they're going to react. And so if yeah. they're constantly being told that no, we don't care what you think, we don't care what happens here, then why would you, why are you going to stand up and, and try to beat your head up against the wall? I mean, we're not stupid. We know, and, and, and people have to pay the bills and they have families to take care of. And so are you really going to, 
put your neck out there when no one else is. And so as the senior leaders, as the CEO, it's your job to create that environment where they're going to be able to, 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 to say something, to bring their best ideas, to, to collaborate, to innovate, um, and to be happy in their jobs so that they're going to go above and beyond. So are there some kind of uh, signals that people can look out for? I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the issue with the companies that have really have a problem aren't the companies that reach out. It, the analogy I would think of is, is parents. I remember hearing radio shows where um, people would call in and they were worrying about their parenting capabilities and skills. And the, and the host would tell them, if you know, you're calling into a radio show for advice on parenting, you're fine. It's the people not calling in that were <laughs> that are the problem. Right? Same thing, right. Of, get this self-selecting crowd with right. the companies that have a toxic culture or have culture issues. Um, you know, maybe they don't know it. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they have, you know, yeah. the leadership themselves are toxic and that's just their style and they like uh, beating everybody up. But I guess for the companies that maybe have issues and just don't realize it, are there things they can look out for signals they can look out for that say, Hey, maybe you need help. Well, I mean, you can start with the three P's. You know, if your productivity, your profits, and your performance is not what you want, if any of those aren't what you want, you have a problem. So, you know, you, you should be able to measure productivity inside your organization, and it should be good. And if it's not what you expect, there's probably some issues there. If, if performance isn't happening, if you don't have high-performing people and they're constantly underperforming, you know, that, and you're getting that feedback, hopefully you're even measuring and a lot of these organizations don't even measure it, but if you're measuring it and your performance is, is low, right? Consistently, that's another issue. And if, and if you're not making money and you should be, I mean, I, so one of the big pillars that I talk about in my book is called is transparency. And uh, there's some great examples out there of, of what it means to be a transparent company. But one of the first ways I was exposed to this was, was through Jack Stack's book. And he it was one of the first to actually share his profit and loss statement with every employee, right? From senior leader down to the janitor who was working on the, on the manufacturing floor. And a lot of his staff didn't know how to read it. They didn't have the financial understanding. And so they even brought people in to teach them how to read a financial statement to help them understand what this meant. And they shared it with them every single month. And from that, they got like 30% more profitable over the next two years because people started understanding what they were spending the money on. Yeah. Impact they had on the organization and they started doing things to help. That's a really right? brave CEO. So is it kind of a concept of something we use around here regularly in, in our meetings, we kind of point out, Hey, a, a point to this meeting is so every department knows that every other department is carrying their weight. And I like to use the, the rowing analogy where, Sometimes people feel like, hey, I'm in this boat rowing and everyone else is asleep with their oars dragging in the water. We're just going in circles. Right. And frequently I feel like departments will feel that way about the other departments. Marketing thinks sales isn't closing the deals. Why should I bother to, to work hard and generate good leads? And sales thinks marketing is just giving them crap leads. They're not going to bother to follow up with them and put in the effort. And every other department thinks every other department isn't. You know, one, when, I guess when you're not seeing the profit, when you're not seeing the productivity and performance, they just all think nobody else is working hard. Nobody else is trying. Again, broken window. Nobody else right. cares if the neighborhood's clean. Yeah. If the windows are broken, why should I? Right. Um, and that's then, where transparency comes in because if we don't know what everyone else is doing, you need to be sharing that information. We also need to be – everyone else needs to know what each department's goals are. What, and what are the other people on your team's goals? 
Mm. How are they even aligned? Because I see organizations that struggle to have a toxic culture and you, I've gone in there and asked them, please show me what the goals are for each department. And in about three minutes, I read through them and I say, these five goals out of the 50 here are totally in conflict with each other. Interesting. So are there different types of culture problems? I mean, are there distinctive different types like a toxic boss or, uh, you know, everybody thinks everybody else, there's probably better names for them, isn't doing their, their job, so why should I awesome. type things? Um, are there distinct types or is it just kind of companies got a problem with culture? So there are different types of bad cultures. I mean, certainly the most obvious is there's a bad boss. There's a bad CEO. It's coming from the top and it's sort of permeating down, right? That's the one we think of. And that actually tends to be the small to medium-sized businesses that fall into that context. You don't tend to see that at the larger companies. The larger companies where the bad culture is happening, it sometimes tends to be dispersed, right? Because maybe they have lots of different locations and there may be certain divisions or departments that are struggling where other ones are maybe doing okay. And you're starting to see um, they're really dealing with politics. And Mm -hmm. politics is often a lack of communication and a lack of transparency. And so you leave people out there to like, you know, climb the ladder on their own. And so they have to pull everyone else down in order to bring themselves up. And that becomes about competing internally rather than, than winning kind of for the company. Because there's no communication, right? But if everyone knows what the goal is and everyone's aligned on the goal, you know what the purpose is and they understand, I, if I understand, you know, what KJ's goals are and she knows what mine are and I know that we're not necessarily competitive, we're going to be comped on us reaching our goals at the same time at the end of the year, but we're, we can work together right? And this is, we don't need to be pulling each other down. That is a really big eye-opening thing inside these big companies. And if it's totally secret and I don't know, are you fighting for the same, you know, promotion I'm, I'm going for? Do you yeah. have the same goals and yeah, things? That's the total definition of a team. Right? Knowing what each other is doing, <laughs> they're buying their with and coordinating, right? I mean, yeah, that's cool. It's like a yeah. sports team, but it's in business. Now, the other things that we notice inside of organizations that are struggling is they have a lot of forced, um, part of the job is forced. And so you're removing autonomy. So, you know, Daniel Pink's work, that re- I think companies at this very base level need to make sure that they are dealing with autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Those three things aren't aligned. You're not doing everything you can to make those as good as you can. It's really hard to be good at anything else with culture. A key in on the word purpose. I mean, it seems like if you take purpose away purpose from somebody, even if you have the other things, right? If you remove somebody's purpose in the job, they're going to stop caring. They're going to like everything else is going to fall away. People have to feel like they have purpose. Right. So a lot of organizations, purpose is really easy, right? They, they, they make some big drug that cures cancer. They're a teacher. They work in a nonprofit, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, their purpose is so easy to understand. But then you have other organizations. Let's just say you work for like a paper company. I was going to say the office, the paper company. It's a, right? an example. What's your purpose other than your paycheck? What is your yeah. purpose? Yeah. And so it, it takes a, it's a little harder to define that. And those, in, in those organizations where the purpose is not so defined, you tend to get leaders in there that they don't know either, right? And that they're less or maybe they have an alternate purpose, right? Right. right. Well, just, frequently it's money. You see those companies and they try, what's your why? And they're like, I don't know how to come up with a why. I'm not a charity that makes shoes for for people in, in uh, downtrodden countries. So what's my why? Like I, I just started a paper company to make business. What do you mean? What's my purpose here? I don't have a right. purpose. 
So what do you do? Do you form a culture around like the company as a, a family unit kind of and camaraderie? Right. Well, the senior leaders or the CEO should really bring someone in. I do some of this work with CEOs to, to, to define this, right? To, to come up with it. It needs to come from them. You can't, off, you can't just send it to HR or send it to some committee and say, come up with what our purpose is, guys. It doesn't work. It has to come <laughs> from the top. And, and they have to really define that, create that. And then they have to make sure they have people on board who are in working in their company that are on board and want to be a part of an organization who believes whatever it is you believe. What uh, about a, like a, um, I guess, coming up with a, um, a adversary? Sometimes the purpose is we're this company and this guy's over here, our competition and they're, so you demonize them kind of. You, you do what uh, Apple did. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean Apple that's... went to Macintosh and they are not Macintosh. Um, Apple looked at Microsoft and said, we're going to make them the bad guys in our, you know, we're the well, that good wasn't guys. their They're purpose. That wasn't out. Apple's purpose. Apple's no, purpose point. was actually to get people to be the best that they could mm. be using technology. That so was I, their... think, I think their purpose, and I'm probably going to bastardize the actual saying, but it was something like to make a spark in the universe or to make a, right. I mean, they had some very, very lofty, purpose right and I'm, I'm forgetting the actual wording but it was like something like that right i'd like, say fluffy purpose it uh, sounds bs i mean when you, yeah, as a, what's the purpose about, of the company to make the universe a better place yeah, it I wasn't have, to make the universe in a better place it was to like make a mark like to make their mark in the universe right, right? and if you think about what they've done how yeah. they changed oh. our lives they have they have reached that purpose and, you know, that's a pretty big lofty thing, but they had the, the innovation, they had the ideas, the creativity and the money. But the and purpose the drove them. And it so drove them. What you saying about autonomy, mastery and purpose, you were saying each employee had to have those three points as something that they were striving for. What did you say about those? Yeah, they had to be striving, but the organization had to be supporting that. So what we see is that if you start forcing people into projects, into things that's you know, and they don't have the autonomy to pick. So the best organizations actually allow their teams to be self-forming. Hmm. Think about that for a moment. Instead of saying, hey, I need you to be on this project. It's, hey guys, I have a project. This is what we need to get done. Who wants to be on it? Right. When they choose it, they're invested. They're, right. Who they're has the creativity, who has the bandwidth, who has the passion, who has the, you know, that can be on this project now. And what's shocking is you get people and this is really the beauty of Scrum is you get people on your teams that don't, that you look on paper, they do not belong on that team, right? And then all of a sudden they, they, you don't realize they had all these other resources and experiences, right? They might be a bookkeeper, but they used to work in marketing five years ago and they, and they know all these other things and they have so much to offer. And this is where innovation and creativity comes from. Instead of just having the same five people on this group, you know, doing this thing over and over. And so well, you get people who care. I mean, I always say to our people, you can't pay somebody to care. It doesn't mean they can't care right. because you're paying them. You don't have to get people to volunteer in order to have them care. But if you get them to volunteer for the particular task at hand, now, you know, they're, they're basically selecting it themselves. They care. And, and most people, if you had a big, important project, what would you do? You go grab your superstars. Yeah. Well, your superstars. They have the bandwidth. But they're not the ones that necessarily have the bandwidth and they have a ton of projects and you've also put probably all your sales and marketing, you know, desires on them and they have so much going on. And so you are pigeonholing them into whatever this thing is and then asking and you're kind of burning them out. And at the same time, 
telling everyone else in your organization, you're not good enough to be on here. We don't believe in you. We don't think you can do this. That's amazing. We lost a good developer one time because he didn't like the projects. He wanted to work on different stuff. He didn't like the stuff we had him working on, but we needed certain things done. So he was working. That's what he gets assigned to. But I mean, the people are, you know, they're they're human. They have their own motivations, their own desires, their own goals. They don't want to work on stuff they don't like working on. And it's a balance, right? I mean, we all have to do things we don't want to do. So I'm not saying that they have autonomy doesn't mean that someone can show up today and say, well, today I'm going to be in customer service and tomorrow I'm going to be in sales. That's anarchy. Yeah. Not autonomy. (laughs) We have things that we need to get them done and they have to prioritize, but there is always a certain amount of our work that we can choose, right? That we can be, we can say yes or no to based on our talents. And I learned along in this, this process that, so everyone used to tell me that you should work on the things that you're bad at. You need to get better at, if you do a personality assessment and it says, Chris, you suck at these five things. And I go, yeah, no kidding. And it was, I don't know. I'd say some people say work on what you're bad at, but then the other half of people say, um, focus on what you're good at. Yeah. I, so I went and asked, I went to every conference I could go to for like three years. And I asked, I would pull all these like speakers and top leaders and the, the best of the best to the side. And I would, I would ask them about this. Should I work on the things I'm bad at? And they would always tell me yes. And then my follow-up question was, but do you do that? And they would say no. (laughs) So society tells us to be good and work at all the things we're bad at. And I learned in my organization that the best thing I could do was to get people as far away as I could from anything that that drained energy from them. Yeah. As many things as they were loved and they were passionate about. I would say it's good to focus or to do some work on things you're bad at, but only, only in your marriage. I, in my experience says only in your marriage and your rela- personal relationships does working on what you're bad at actually have any value inside of well, yeah. so those are your personal relationships. Oh, in, your, in your hobbies, maybe you can do it, but in your day-to-day life, in your practice, in your work, I was a mediocre college wrestler back in the day. And I remember one of my coaches one time telling me you need three moves. Like you can't be terrible at anything or that's a weakness people will exploit. But if you look at most of the really successful people around you, they're known for usually one thing. Like, oh, right. that guy does this and nobody really can stop it. it. That guy does this and nobody can stop it. And you're just like, oh my God, yeah, I can't stop this on him and this on him. And that's it. And you have to have like some defense. UFC fighters, they're, all, they're yeah. good usually at one thing. Now they don't suck at anything. They don't They're well-rounded, suck, but, but you have really one thing where you're just like, thing. yeah. You only have to kill somebody one way. Like you <laughs> win with one move. That's it. That's all you need. You just get good at. And this guy said three things. Have three things. One of them might get taken away one way or another. But don't try to master everything. Focus on a couple things you like, a couple things you're good at, and just get really good at those. Well, that would really keep people engaged, wouldn't it, Chris? It does, and and I'll tell you, it starts with me. Because I stopped doing the things I hated doing that were ma- making me miserable, that were making me like feel low in energy. Hallelujah. And I gave them to other people who were like, oh, this is the awesomest thing I you've ever given it. me to do. And I'm like, really? Because <laughs> this makes me want to blow my brains out. But cool. <laughs> Glad you love it. Right? I so and, admire you for loving it too. Yeah. Like, you're awesome. Like, but I'm just like, you know, <laughs> slowly back away from the ledge because I don't have to do it anymore. And, you know, and I started doing more of the things that I loved doing, which was speaking, which was, you know, talking about culture, which was, you know, all these, and actually I'm, I'm good at marketing. So like 
doing more marketing. I was never doing the marketing because I didn't have the time or the energy. And that's now where I spend a lot more of my time. And, and so I started getting happier and better. And so, of course, I'm now managing my people and my people are happier because I'm not running around being a jerk, um, you know, or being grumpy or never meeting deadlines because I was avoiding doing the work or whatever it may be. So, and I was also giving them permission to do the exact same thing. That's awesome. Right. And then, and challenging them every day. Don't do things that, that make you miserable. If you're doing anything that makes you miserable, let me know, you know, and we all have that 1%. There's all, we all have a few things that we get stuck doing or we have to do that we just can't out. I just can't outsource the fact that I'm the CEO and I have to deal with this. You know, every once in a while we get a bad employee and I got to be involved. I don't enjoy that, but I do have to deal with it from time to time. Right. But it is, a, it is an act of life and it doesn't have to be the, the large percentage. Right. But We're going to take a really quick break here. When we come back, Chris, can you talk a little bit about what is probably one of the top thing people listening want to hear more about, which is the bad boss, what to do about a bad boss culture problem. Um, so we're going to go to break. You're listening to the If You Market podcast. I'm your host, Sky Cassidy. We have Carla Jo Helms here with us and Chris Dyer of... Wow, Chris, I'm blanking on your company name. Can People you help me out here? People G2. There you go. People, there it is. People G2. I have your, I have your book <laughs> you in front of me. You say it, Chris. The Power of Company Culture is the book. The company is People G2. We'll be back in just a second. Hey, thanks, everyone. This is Mike Faraday with Pro Sales Connection. We work with B2B companies with complex and technical solutions to help them grow their pipeline and, and generate more real, meaningful sales meetings for their sales team. We do this through a strategy that we call growth driven marketing. If you'd like to know more about how we do that and how we help B2B companies grow, uh, you can reach us at www.prosalesconnection.com and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Welcome back to the If You Market podcast. I'm your host, Sky Cassidy. We've got co-host Carla Jo Helms and Hi, our guys. guest today, Chris Dyer. Dyer like wolf, right, Chris? Sure. And uh, <laughs> he's the CEO of... Uh, People G2. We just said this before the break. People G2. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm a terrible person. So I asked you before the break, Chris, um, bad bosses. What should people do? What can people do about a bad boss? And how often do people think they have a bad boss problem and really they're just a bad employee problem? Yeah. So you bring up a couple good points there. Um, you know, uh, the first thing I always tell people is if you have a bad boss, the best thing you could probably do is go find a new job. Um, I love that one. Yes. Putting up with this crap. You right? can fire your boss, find somewhere you like to work. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, take your time, work at it, you know, but a lot of times it's just, we get used to it. We're lazy. We're worried about, will the next thing be good or not? I mean, not, those are all real, you know, real things. Um, the second part, which you started to bring into, is that we all bring 50% to the, any relationship we're in. So unless this boss is being is bullying you, which is a you know really a, a specific thing, right? That they're targeting you, or they're being somewhat inappropriate with you in some way that you need to involve HR. Let's just take that and put that in a separate bucket because you should be dealing with HR or someone if that's really happening to you. If it's just they're a jerk and you just don't like them and they're just a pain in the ass. The first thing you should do is get, you know, get rid of them. If, they, if you can do that. Now, so if it's like you're a vegan and they eat meat, okay, suck it up or right. <laughs> find a vegan boss. You know, and, and there are situations where the money is so good. The, where you're working is so good. 
that uh, maybe your the opportunities are so small, maybe where you live or whatever, there may be some barriers to where it's just not going to happen. You're just not right. going to be able to change right now. And that's okay. And um, I would say, um, be good at your job and remote working. Lots of companies do a lot of remote working nowadays. We have a podcast. Uh, I can't remember the episode number, but one of our past podcasts, go back and listen to that one. Start looking for jobs that say they're looking for remote workers and make right. sure you're really good at what you do. So I guess take advantage of your time at your current job to get paid and uh, up your game a little bit. Make yourself more marketable. So usually where we, the type of person that we're talking about in these situations is a boss or CEO or someone that has a big personality, is very overbearing and can get very angry or short-tempered. That's usually the, the sort of the persona um, that we see. So in dealing with those people, there's a couple great strategies that you can do. The first one is I suggest that if they come in all hot, you know, and they want to get mad at the team or you or whatever it is, is that you shut up and let them just deflate. Let them get let it them all, vent. all out. Yeah. Okay. Right. Remember, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with their crappy upbringing and their terrible ability to regulate their own mood. It has nothing to do with you. And if it could be anyone else in that room, and that's who they're going to yell at. That's unfair we don't like it but it's it's not anything to do with you personally so let them talk and take a, as best of the notes as, as you can and the notes themselves don't necessarily matter so much but you need to show that person that you're listening you need to, to find ways to make you acknowledge um typically when um when men look at someone in the eyes and they nod their head yes they're nodding that they hear them. They're not necessarily nodding that they agree with them. Mm -hmm. um, but with women, it's they won't nod usually unless they actually agree. My nod right now is hear and agree. So I, I'm taking right. that. Right. So there's a disconnect on the signals you may be saying, whether you're a male or female, or whether or not what they're doing as far as the nodding. So um, there's this misconception that nodding means I agree with you. And there are some real differences in, in, in how genders generally without an autopilot deal with that. And so you have to be very careful if you're nodding or not, because they think you're agreeing with whatever it is you're saying. So it's important if you're taking good notes and you're letting them get it all out, that then when it's your turn to respond, you demand, you say, I really appreciate you telling me all this. Would it be okay if I walk through some of this and let you know what, what I'm thinking? And usually they'll say yes, because now they're tired, right? They've been lambasting everyone for 30 minutes. Yeah. Right? But inevitably what happens is you start talking and they start interrupting. And that's the that's moment true. where you have to take control and say, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I listened to everything you said. I took a lot of notes. When you said I would, you know, I, I could respond. It would, would that be okay if you just keep saying that, right? Every time they interrupt, you just go back to, okay, but you said I could respond. Can I, can we, can we make, can I go through with this? And I listened respectfully when you talked, I let you get it all out. You know, you kind of ramp this up to the point and eventually they will stop. You'll be shocked at these big bully personalities. You keep reminding them, you promised me I, I could talk. You promised me I could, could tell you, I could respond to all of these things that you brought up. All the Do they eventually just get embarrassed. They do. They get embarrassed. Saying, right? Is it my turn yet? Is it my turn yet? Right. And, and you're almost pointing out in front of the group or even to them, you keep interrupting, right? I, you, you want me to solve this problem for you. I'll solve it. You, can you give me a second here to respond? You know, and, and I've even had to call people out and say, listen, 
I took notes for 30 minutes and I didn't interrupt you one time. You know, can I, can I respond to you without you interrupting me? You know, and they don't, they won't like it, but they, what's fascinating is they eventually shut up. And the other part that's fascinating is I've never had a person in that situation, whether it was me or anyone else I coached to do that ever, ever do anything like to fire them or, or to, blow up or yeah, it, it always eventually get there because you are validating their feelings. You're validating what they think and you're trying to help them get where they need to go. You're not pushing back. Basically when somebody has that behavior type pushing back really right. just is not effective. You're not saying you're a jerk, you know, whatever you're just saying, Hey, you, you know, but you have to, to kind of negotiate that in, you know, when they're done, but you, you can't do that when they're angry. You can't do that when they're in that mode. Right. And they're just, they're going and going, you just got to take notes and shut up because you're, is there a such thing as an intervention where all the employees get together and call the boss in and say, look, we love yeah. you, but <laughs> I mean, maybe, I mean, I've heard of that and I've heard of it working, but I've, you know, I could also backfire on you. You've got a problem. I like this strategy, right? So you're yeah. listening to them, you're understanding them, you let them deflate right. and then you address the points. I mean, what I, what you've I got see. a problem. Unfortunately, it's not drinking. We wish it was drinking <laughs> or some other form of drugs. It's not, right. it's your attitude. Right. And, and usually that person, you know, that what they're doing works is actually a benefit in other areas, their passion. Totally. And, right. And they're, they're, they're getting out. I mean, there are just so many good other good parts about that, but that it's sort of negative in that connotation. And so what I find is if everyone is really listening, and takes it seriously what that person is saying, that over time they feel less and less of a need to come into a room and blow it up. Because what they've had in the past is people not taking them seriously and not listening. And, and when they say, listen, this is a problem, and then five people leave a meeting and never deal with the problem, their fear, their anxiety is that we have an issue and it's not going to get dealt with and right. I'm not dealing with it. So that's the bad employee part. You're saying my boss sucks, but you he keeps asking you to get things done and you're not getting them done. So who sucks? Right. Like it's kind of a mutual, you both suck situation. Or maybe because your boss is so angry, you don't really understand what the actual thing is, which is mm -hmm. why you take good notes and you listen the whole 30 minutes without interrupting because you may start picking up the tidbits. It's not that they're mad that sales are down. What they're really mad at is that these two salespeople suck and we haven't done anything about it. Right. Right. right? That's, so my you, kids tell me all the time. Oh, if I don't let them have uh, have candy, then I'm bad. Right. That, that doesn't make, I'm not a bad boss because I won't let you have candy. You're, you're misbehaving. You don't get candy. You don't, you can't put that. So I think some employees will be, which I guess takes me to the next thing, bad employees. So a bad boss, probably pretty easy to identify as long as you're not projecting yourself onto them. And really they're just angry at you because you suck at your job or, or you have an attitude problem or something. Then there's bad employees where you have a toxic individual employee maybe or or multiple employees i mean other than you're their boss so you can fire them what what can and should be done about that so i have a theory that in most cases there is no such thing as a bad employee there is either a bad culture that is allowing behavior to fester and allowing people to do crappy things or isn't even providing them the rules and the way and the environment for them to be successful. They're just sort of floundering because they don't know how to get anything done. Well, I might add, you could easily say for your company, we don't have bad employees. We have good employees and bad former employees. 
as soon as they're mad. <laughs> right. I think that is a good rule to go by, but I can't, I don't, I don't agree that you would have no, like there's an absolute well, in that case. To get the, people. The second part of it though is that, that if, if the culture is good, if you do have a good environment, right? The whole broken windows thing we talked about, if you have that good and the person still isn't right, it's often a, a bad hiring situation. Yeah. You brought right. someone in who does not have the capability um, to do the job. Right. And so that's a bad hiring situation. We've had the issue where the person is, the problem is the person can do the job, but they're just toxic in the office. I mean, we Some had- people are toxic. Won't name any names, but you know who you are. Um, <laughs> where they're just terrible around and everybody is just, you know, once they're gone, people are just like, thank you. Why did it take so long? Oh my gosh, that person right. was, um, it, see, it was bad hiring and that one should have seen it too, in the right? You yeah. do have those rare ones, but I, I do find a lot of times that those people can be coached and their energies and their, that sort of thing that is a being annoying in some regards can actually be turned around towards a really big positive in some other area. And so it's often misalignment. They're in the wrong job. You know, the way they're being managed, the lack of coaching, the way the environment is, they're being left to fend for themselves and sort of the worst of their behaviors come out. And I think all of us could get there in, in the right situation. You put us in the, 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 a terrible situation and we could probably be pretty difficult people. Um, you know what I mean? And so you have to really, really think about that component. Now, of course there are those people. This is why I have a background check company, right? This is why you want to check people out. There are some people. That's the bad that, hiring. You're like, yes, that person. Right. That you are should have known they're criminal. You should have known, right. That you call every of their past employers and they're like, whoa, right. Mm -hmm. There are those people out there, but they are certainly, I think we've far too often put a label on people that it's their problem and that the company hasn't done anything wrong, right? The company's not, has any part of this. Their manager has no part in this, which is just ridiculous. Right. That's a good point. Don't blame the snake for biting someone. They're a snake. You should have never let them in. Like you should have <laughs> never hired this person. You right. should have hired a background check company. Well, what I'm <laughs> hearing is there's no blame. There's full responsibility. Even when you have a bad hire, you're still responsible for hiring right. that person without the... Right correct capabilities so you make an adjustment but there really should be no blame but if i'm hearing you right it's nobody's well, fault it's what's the, the what's situation, the right what's the point of that right what happens when you blame someone now you, you're going to fire that employee and now the other one's on notice well, I mean, then, well it just mistake, right? i don't think it ever gets you to a point where you could take responsibility and correct it for the future i mean if you hire someone it's not the right person you fail fast you get rid of them as quickly as you can and you realize what your mistakes were how can we do this better next time do we need a background check? Do we need a personality test? Do we need to do a better reference check? I mean, what do we need to do, right? Or was it just bad luck? Was it just, you know? It happens, we, yeah. But if it's happening regularly, you obviously have a problem in your process. Exactly. And, yeah. and I will tell you that our clients that consistently call and tell us that they have a problem, it's the same people, right? Like this stop is hiring same. people from your anger management class. It's not a good idea. <laughs> not a good talent pool. Um, unless, unless you're looking for UFC fighters, maybe. So yeah. we're getting really close to the end here. There's one, one other thing um, I wanted to, uh, to get into with you. Can you give some tips on things people can do to improve their, their company culture? So maybe you have a marketing manager just within their department, even they want them. I mean, yeah. I know there's things like, 
you know, getting your group together and you go to the park and you do trust falls and there's all kinds of stuff, not to demean that kind of stuff, but there's kind of team building activities and there's hanging posters that say, yay, hang in there and go get it motivational stuff around the walls and saying, here's who we are as a company. But does that stuff work? Is it a good idea? What can no, people do? Like crap. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two things you need to think about that. I mean, there's a lot of things uh, and I could point you to several different books or my book, but the two I can give you right now that will be simple. First, the first thing is the aggregation of marginal gains, which is you want to get 1% better at a time. You can only get a little bit better at a time. And you want to make sure that as you get a little bit better, you don't get a little bit worse at something else. So whatever you're going to try to get better at, don't walk in and try to go from A to Z. You want to go from A to B. So right? incremental improvement. Incremental little. improvements is all you can do. And I think marketing people should understand that with, you know, with ads and different things. We're not, we're not trying to go, the giant leap is not usually what happens. Usually tiny data points that help us build, 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 build until we end up with something that works. And, and so that's, that's what you need to start with, that, uh, that frame of mind that if I'm, I want my team, I want my company, I want these people to be better, this is going to be a day-by-day process as we get a little bit better at a time because that's palatable, that's something you can actually do. Now, the what second, about non-work activities like uh, dinners and picnics and, and playing you, ping you pong, that kind of stuff? Did you have another point? No. Oh, sorry. You had a second. Sorry. Seven, <laughs> so, seven. so to your point, Scott, if you, if you care about people, you care about people. So you're going to figure out what's the best way to do that. Right. I'm not going to give anyone a prescription on do one dinner every three nights and do one, one picnic every year. I mean, you're going to decide what's best for you and your company and what that means. But I think where you can really have a huge impact is uh, to focus on positivity. And there's a whole school of thought called appreciative inquiry. And that means to focus on what's working. So everything you do in every interaction and in every meeting, you should be talking about what's working what's going well what have you done well what is working in this project right and then when you want to identify things that are problems those should actually be reframed as opportunities for us to do better yeah so, so think about if a client calls you and is upset it is our normal inclination to want to get that client back to status quo right you're mad at me right now but an hour ago you weren't how do i get you back to where you were an hour ago when you weren't mad at me and that's all you're trying to solve appreciative inquiry says hey let's talk about what's working it's also a great diffuser in any in an angry person situation what's working what are we doing right what are we doing well right i thought you were going to say it's a, it's a great uh, diffuser because when you say the word appreciative inquiry everybody stops and says huh huh yeah <laughs> And then, and then say, now I understand what's working. Let's dream. Let's, let's dream and design and think about what we could do to make this better. So let's say a client calls you and says, you screwed up my invoice. How dare you? You overcharged me. Okay. You could just say, I'm so sorry. Let me fix the invoice and we're done. Probably that problem is going to happen again to either them or some other client because whatever happened to have that be misbilled. What you need to say is, okay, great. So what's working? What does, is the billing coming to you correctly? All these things. Now, how do we figure out how to make sure this doesn't ever happen again, right? What can we change in the process? What can we assign? What can we do so that you or any other client doesn't ever have to have this, this problem, this issue? And that's when you view things this way, when your team thinks about these things in a way of focusing on what's working and figuring out how we make things better, what is the opportunity to make an improvement instead of blaming, instead of focusing on what's wrong, right? I don't ever go to my lowest salesperson and say, what the hell's wrong with you? I go to my best salesperson and say, what are you doing to always be making your mark, your number? 
How are, what are you doing? What's working? And can you share that with the rest of the team? Okay, I got to take a note. Don't ask Lois salesperson what the hell's wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> that's my go-to question. I don't know what else right? to do. Now. But that's where people go. Oh, we didn't hit our number this month. What the hell's wrong with these two guys? Mm-hmm. Right? And they start, they get mad and they go in, they're going to blow up the, if you focus on what your top people are doing and get them to share and to work and be collaborative with those people who are struggling, you will notice a huge increase in most cases from those people. Again, sometimes it's a bad hire. They shouldn't be doing that job but you're never going to be successful by always putting all your energy and attention on what's failing or what's not working. You have to focus on what's right and what's good first to set that tone with everybody so that we can then explore where we can get better. Focus on what you want to get. So being positive, being an optimist kind of helps in the office. Yeah, and it's not like, like, I see myself in a red Mercedes and one's going to appear tomorrow. I'm not talking about that stuff, right? I'm talking about what it's thinking about what we can do. I mean, it's just like if you have clients that are really good clients, how do you f- identify what makes them a great client? And how do you go find more of those and fire the ones you hate? Right. Yeah. So a, a mode, be a motivational leader, a positive and optimistic leader, not a leader who just finds problems and beats them up kind of. Right. Nice. Okay. Well, we're really we short on time now. Too. Yeah. What? It works for parenting. It, it works in a lot of areas. Yeah. You must be good to, uh, to, to work for. Well, I'll tell you, KJ brought up parenting. I'll tell you the number one thing you can do as a parent is to always say yes to your children. Uh-oh. Yes. <laughs> okay, that's for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and yes, but. But, <laughs> but always yes. And yes, but. That's cool. Well, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, Daddy, can I have candy? Yes, but when you're an adult and you can buy your own. Can I go to a party with alcohol and there's no parents at the house? Yes, but I have to come with you. <laughs> Sounds like you just want a party. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, this has been fantastic. Um, let me see. If you want to, uh, to find Chris or to find Chris Dyer, you can, um, you can find him at chrispdyer.com. Also in the show notes, of course, you, we'll put all this information or peopleg2.com. Also, Chris's book, The Power of Company Culture. Check that out. And his podcast, Talent Talk. You can, uh, you can find him there. Chris, anything I'm leaving out that you want to throw out there? I'm always happy to accept a LinkedIn connection or I'm on all the social, on the, the, the Twitter and the Snap and the Insta, wherever you want to find me, I will be annoyingly there. So feel free to connect. Fantastic. Um, all right. Well, please, uh, please do follow the show here also. Um, the If You Market podcast, follow us on social, um, subscribe to us if you haven't already, all that kind of good stuff. And uh, on behalf of Carla Jo Helms and the If You Market team and Chris Dyer of The Power of Company Culture, that's the name of the book. I don't know why I keep putting that down as your company name, of People G2. Um, good. Chris Dyer of People G2, thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast, where we believe if you market the shit out of it, they will come. With a great company culture. With a great company culture. Bada budding. Very finished. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was fantastic. The If You Market podcast is brought to you by Mountaintop Data. And at Mountaintop Data, we're all about data for B2B marketing. Our goal is to improve the quality, depth, and coverage of our clients' targeted marketing data while removing the technical pain of accessing and implementing data. We help with everything from new target contacts to appending and cleaning existing data, all with the goal to free you and your team up to focus on creating great marketing experiences. Check us out online at mountaintopdata.com and sign up for our new top data search tool, 
and get free access to search our database of over 30 million business contacts. Use the code hashtag IYM when signing up and get 200 free credits. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.